Hey everyone, and welcome back to another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christopher Brown. Today's guest is the former Associate Minister of Health and the former MLA for Calgary Acadia, Brandy Payne. Brandy and I sit down and have an open conversation around mental health and how everyone needs to find the best work personal life balance. Failure to do so could result in burning out. We also talk about her unexpected run in the 2015 provincial election. We talk about her being one of the first two female cabinet ministers in Alberta's history to give birth while being a cabinet minister and what the future holds. So sit back, relax, and enjoy cross-border interviews featuring Randy Payne. So we are recording now. So first off, Brandy, thank you very much for doing this. We are here in the Fish Creek Library. As you just told me, it's a special meeting to you. Um, My first question to any politician, former or current, is where does your sense of duty come from? That's a really interesting question. Um, And I think ultimately, and I I imagine you hear this one a bit, is I think I get it from my parents. Yep. Um, uh, My mom... uh, was a really community-minded person uh, and also really raised us with like strong family values and like in, in the sense of you know we care for and look out for the people that we know and I took that a couple steps further beyond just the people that I'm related to and the people that I know and the people that are my friends to the people who live in our wider community um, so for me you know and we when I think about for example example, you know, here we are in the library. This is an example of a way that we can give back as part of our community by having a free public space that anyone can come to. You can use a computer, you can study in a quiet room, you can borrow books, DVDs, music CDs, whatever you need is here. And then there's these really awesome people who work here who are here to help you if you have any questions or need help looking for things. And so, you know, my mom worked at uh, this branch when I was a child and as I was growing up. And I think that having a place like this as part of my formative years really helped me to think about community as something beyond my neighborhood and beyond the people that were in my school or that were in my immediate orbit. So there's many different ways that one can give back to the community. Uh, You chose the path of politics. Was politics a uh, common topic in your household growing up or was it something that you grew into as you got older? I would say something I grew into as I got older. Um, I uh, One of the things that I uh, strikes me as funny now looking back is, um, you know, I uh, was in high school during the Ralph Klein era uh, as we were having um, a similar situation to what we've got now, lots of budget cuts coming. Uh, and I, my first ever political argument was with my dad at the kitchen table. And I said that you can't just cut, um, that you have to look at how the impacts for healthcare and education will be. And you have to make strategic decisions that don't harm people. And my dad said, we have to balance the budget. And I said, no, we don't. (laughs) We have to think about our community and the province that we want to build and how these decisions impact people. And we have to, we can't just say 10% and leave it at that and like hope for the best. We have to think about it. And so 
uh, as a politician, it was really interesting to me that, you know, 20-ish years later, I was around the table making those decisions of how do we deal with a decline in provincial revenues while also protecting those really critical social services. Um, So that really came full circle for me. (laughs) So it sounds like your father was a conservative. Um, How does a conservative father influence a daughter to get into the NDP then? (laughs) It just doesn't seem to add up because when you talk to kids today, whatever their parents vote for, it seems that their kids vote for something else. So how did you get involved with the NDP? Uh, Well, I would say my mom had more progressive values. (laughs) Okay. uh, Small P progressive. Uh, And, you know, my dad does like Rachel. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So I think uh, that really speaks to to how um, Rachel not only really reached across some partisan aisles uh, in in terms of some of the policies she did, Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's, for me, it's really about how we look out for each other. And I remember when I went to university, I took a bunch of philosophy courses in my first year. Um, I have a degree in journalism, and in our first year, we had one journalism class of the whole year. And so we had so much time and space to take other things. And I was like, well, I'll take some philosophy. So I took a feminist philosophy course, and I took a Marxist philosophy course. And I found myself being exposed to ideas that just didn't come up in my Calgary classroom in the Catholic school system. Okay. (laughs) So I, uh, and then in my English class, I had opportunities to pick some of the books that I was reading. And so I picked some books that were, um, had a little more of a political end to them. And so kind of uh, through my my university years and um, getting involved on my, on my campus, um, with some of the the folks who are organizing against tuition fee increases, um, it was uh, I would like that's where I really kind of connected with those values. For me, one of the really the moments that really stands out there is um, I went to university. I had a scholarship, an entrance scholarship, um, but my parents, like my dad, works in oil and gas. Um, my mom works at the library, and so or works at the library, and so we had we were in a situation where I did, we didn't need the scholarship for me to go to university. We would have been able to find, figure it out. And so as my grades kind of slid a little in the first year, as they do, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't terribly worried about what that was going to mean. I mean, I knew it was going to be a little more difficult to come back next year, but it wasn't going to be a deal breaker. But I remember a friend of mine who came from a really low-income family, raised by a single mom, struggled to get by, uh, and was on a scholarship that covered off her tuition. And she had a couple of bad marks that meant that her scholarship was at risk. And I remember sitting with her at her place and her being in tears because if she didn't get that scholarship, she couldn't come back next year. She wasn't going to be able to finish university. She was in my journalism program. She was a better journalist than I was. She was smarter than I was. She was better at all of our classes. And it hit me that it wasn't fair that I was going to be there no matter what, but that my friend who was super talented and worked so hard might not be able to come back because of money. And so that's when I I became really politicized and realized that we have to build a, a society where everyone gets to succeed and one that really actually is based on how good someone is and how hard they work. And I know we say that about our society, but at the end of the day... 
you know, kids like my daughters who, you know, are born into well-educated families, um, very financially comfortable, they're going to be fine. But the kids down the street who live in the subsidized housing, it they might not be. It all depends on the choices that we make today. So when you got elected, was that something that was prominent in your mind going forward? Did you think to yourself, I need to, well, we need to look out for everyone. We need to make a special focus on the people who are struggling today. Absolutely. Um, you know, and for me, it uh, part of the reason that I ran in 2015 or that I was in a position that when I was asked, I said yes. Uh, well, I was going to get into that next, yep. <laughs> was uh, I... Uh, I was really upset by the budget that the former government tabled in 2015. I couldn't believe we're back in that same spot where we were going to be cutting healthcare and education, like setting people who are struggling so hard up for failure. And so I got mad and I was like, I'm going to get involved in this election. I'm going to donate. I'm going to volunteer on a campaign. And um, my husband was working full time to support the Calgary candidates for the NDP. And so I, uh, I was like, great. So we'll do that. And then I'll like work around trying to do some other stuff to help support, get some folks in and like, you know, help spread the word. (laughs) How did you become a candidate then? Well, and then about two weeks into the election, we'd had a candidate lined up for Calgary Acadia, but due to a flurry of of things um, she wasn't actually able to be the candidate and so uh, quite literally 24 hours before the nomination deadline I got a phone call from my husband who was managing the candidates for Calgary uh, and he said we need a we need a candidate in Calgary Acadia I think it should be you and I said, well, honey, I'm about to go teach a yoga class. Um, so I'm going to need to think about that. And he's like, okay, but like, think about it. We'll talk tonight. Uh, and so uh, I thought about it and I thought, well, why why not? That is definitely one way to get involved. Yeah. Um, looking at the 2012 results for Calgary Acadia, I did not expect I would win. I don't think the majority of candidates thought <laughs> No, no, to. and I, I, I certainly didn't. I was, uh, I remember texting with my, my brother who lives in Ontario, uh, and he's like, "Wow, I can't believe you're running. That's really cool." And I was like, "Well, I like, yeah, I'm running, but I don't think I'm gonna win." And I, you know, it's like in 2012, 90 percent of the vote went to the Conservative and the Wild Rose candidate. Uh, our NDP candidate came in fourth. I'm going to be thrilled if I come in third this time. Yeah. Uh, which is funny because on election night, he sent me a screen grab of that text and asked what the word I would use for winning was. Um, and I was like, a little flabbergasted. <laughs> but yeah, so um, basically uh, later that night, Scott and I had a conversation and I decided to put my name forward. And So had you helped out on a campaign beforehand? Had you had any political experience running a campaign, being involved in a campaign? Uh, yeah, so I... Like, I've, I'd always been more on the staff end of things okay. than the, like, behind-the-scenes end of things. Uh, I was involved... I lived in Vancouver for a few years, which is where I met my husband. Uh, and while I was there, I worked at a student union. We did a lot of campaign organizing. Uh, and I was on the EDA of my local NDP MLA. And... Uh, 
worked on her election campaign and all like so, so that wasn't so like was, you were I was coming never, into a... no but I was never the forward facing person and <laughs> I uh, yeah that wasn't necessary and as I thought about getting more involved in politics before the 2015 election I hadn't thought of being the forward facing person either I was thinking you know behind the scenes helping out doing some door knocking but here I was so <laughs> May I think second if I'm not mistaken election night or May 5th one May or the 5th. other May 5th in my mind forever <laughs> There you go. So, One of the, like, you know, it's like it ranks up there in terms of significant days, along with, like, my marriage, like my <laughs> wedding, and my children's births. Like, it was a, not to put too much on it, but, like, it was a real turning point in my life, I would argue. So, you said that you were flabbergasted. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, you you see the little blue check mark right beside your name. You've been elected for Calgary, Katie. You're flabbergasted. Well, what's the next thing? Are you going, okay? what do I do now? Or does your husband take you aside and say, okay, you've been elected. We'll figure this out together. Uh, well, he was supposed to be doing that for all of the candidates that <laughs> okay. got elected. Yep. So we each got a couple moments. Uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting because I, uh, I booked off the next morning. So I, uh, I was teaching yoga at the time and Wednesday was one of my busy class days. So I booked off my first class of the day, but I was scheduled still to teach two classes that afternoon. Uh, uh, and not knowing what else to do, I went and taught my yoga classes. <laughs> uh, and funnily enough, uh, the we also had, uh, was it CTV and CBC TV had both reached out and uh, wanted to interview the yoga teacher who was now in MLA because that was unusual. So I did a little interview with each of them, one between the two classes and one after one of the classes and then I went home and had a voicemail waiting for me from like our caucus team connecting me with like the person who was going to be my uh, kind of like staff support person while everything was getting transition, sorted out yeah. yeah through the transition so that was uh, yeah it was interesting and then I mean like it was we had uh, like about a week later there was like the in the new MLA orientation that the legislative office does and, and let's talk about that what was, what was it like the moment you walked onto the ledge floor is the first time as an oh MLA gosh. elect. It was incredible. Like it was just like it's a it's a it's a stunning room, the legislature uh, and like the chamber. It's a beautiful building, the whole building, and then the the chamber itself is just like this one's like super plush carpet and these like really like fancy chairs that look more comfortable than they actually are. <laughs> okay, um, but you know it's just like it just really hit me like I'm. I'm part of, like, I'm a representative for my area. I'm part of the decision-making process of our province. And as I was sitting down in one of the chairs, because at this point we didn't know which one were going to be our chairs, uh, as I sit down in this chair, I flash back to when I was in Ottawa, and then I had gone on a tour of Capitol Hill, yeah. by, like Parliament buildings. And the time that we went, the House wasn't in session, so we actually got to go into the legislature a little. They, they set it up at that time so you can kind of step in a little. You can't go to the desks, you can't touch anything, but you can kind of step in and take a, a look from the ground floor. And I remembered, and it was a memory that I hadn't thought of in, during the whole election period, but I remembered standing there and thinking, it might be cool to sit in a chair like this one day. 
And there I was, sitting in a chair like that, one day. <laughs> so you, you get sworn in, you're officially in MLA, your whole life changes. You go from a very private person, I'm assuming, to a very public persona. From that perspective, was it was that the hardest part, would you say? Was everything in your life is now the public's right to know? Oh, you know, I think that was challenging for sure. And I found Twitter really hard, to be honest. I hadn't been on Twitter before the election. And I uh, joined Twitter the day after the election because a woman that I'd known from Vancouver sent me a note saying, I think someone's impersonating you on Twitter. And there was a, a fake account that had been set up. They'd screen grabbed a photo of me from the newspaper the night before uh, and was impersonating me. Me and basically making me sound like a complete idiot. Uh, so we reported it to Twitter and then signed up with an actual account. And so my first experience with Twitter was terrible. And I can't say that it got a lot better after that. It's just very, it's a, a very, um, a, I find it very aggressive. I find the tone people don't, I think the people when they're on Twitter forget that they're talking to other people. And, uh, and I find that it can just be like so negative and so argumentative and and, uh, you know, it's like the uh, <laughs> Twitter is everything that I'm trying to teach my children not to be like. You know, we do so much work on bullying in the classrooms and bullying in the workplace. And then we go on Twitter and it's like bullying central. Um, so that was tough, especially because like, especially as a woman, there's a lot of people who feel that on Twitter, it's not only their job to comment on your decisions, but also on your looks and uh, whether or not it's appropriate for you as a mother to be in a public office, uh, things like that. And so it's just, it was very unpleasant, that piece. Well, <laughs> the rise of the tr Twitter troll was prominent, I, I, would, I would even admit, the day after the election. Mm -hmm. Because the day after the election, I think, and I, I, I could be wrong here, I'm not, saying, I'm not trying to generalize all the right wing, but the right wing sort of was pissed off that the NDP had officially won government in Alberta. So you saw the negative attacks to Rachel, to Sarah, to uh, Shannon, to all the female MLAs. How do you, as a group, overcome that? Do you just have to tune it out at some point in time and say, you know what? They can say whatever they want. We just don't read the comments anymore on Twitter. We just post there. That was my theory. Like, that's how I, I dealt with it. Because, you know, I, I, I'm happy to engage in a dialogue, but I'm not... I'm not down with like throwing insults at each other. And I know some people um, really enjoy the kind of back and forth and verbal sparring that Twitter can can sometimes be. Um, but I really found that a lot of the comments, it wasn't about, you know, having a, a joking good time. It was about trying to hurt someone yeah. verbally. And I just, I, for me, we did a lot of, there's a lot of muting on Twitter. <laughs> a <laughs> lot blocking. of ignoring. <laughs> yep. Occasional blocking. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, we had a couple of, of folks that would regularly comment, and we just would, yeah, you just kind of scroll past it. And I think ultimately part of the challenge of um, of being in an elected role is is really learning when to listen and when to like kind of have the comments bounce off you. Um, and I think for me, the line that I made was when we're talking about policy, 
I'm here to listen. Do you want to talk about my personality? I, I don't know you. You don't know me. Yeah. There's no space for that. Yeah. Uh, and I think, too, like, that's why, for me, it was really important um, as I was going through the, the times in MLA um, and when I was in cabinet to just always be making decisions that were in lines with my values and to always come from that place because at the end of the day I was going to have to live with what we did and I the fact is not everyone's going to agree with everything that you do um, I would get comments saying we're going too far and I got comments saying we weren't going far enough and uh, you know it's like you have to be able to live with the decisions you make and be able to defend them and so for me that was a really important part um, it was really helpful in many ways that so many of my personal values were represented in our platform uh, and in the decision making that we that we did and for some of the stuff where I maybe didn't agree at first I could understand yeah. why we were making that decision um, so let's talk about your yeah. time in cabinet now yeah so you, you you're a newly elected MLA you didn't really hold like you said political aspirations to be the front person so you get elected you get the call they want you in cabinet what was that like and take me through that process of when you got the call to that moment when you put the hand on the book to affirm or swear your oath to the queen so a friend of mine that I've known from my time in Vancouver she had been working on election days since she was 16 uh, and she'd been working on campaigns since she was three like helping out with leaflet drops with her parents because her parents were quite active and she had come out on election day uh, the day before election day and on election day she wanted to help with my e-day and uh, and I remember like on election night like at around like one in the morning as we're wrapping up to go home she's like you're going to be in cabinet within six months and I'm like I, I can't even think about that right now she's like within the year I'll bet and I'm like okay whatever like I, I, I'm just trying to figure out becoming an MLA yeah. so like whatever uh, and then so you know we got started started figuring everything out uh, and then um, in October I became pregnant at the end of October and which is a first one of the first for Alberta at the time we Stephanie hadn't told people she was pregnant so I thought I was literally the first okay uh, <laughs> found out that I was going to be the second by six months uh, later like two weeks later I think um, and then uh, we had uh, in December uh, at the press gallery party I told the premier that I was expecting uh, and so I didn't think much was going to change after that uh, and then in February was it February no sorry it was mid-January late January I was up for a committee meeting and got a call from the then chief of staff's assistant that he needed to meet with me uh, on this day that was two days after I was supposed to be back in Calgary and so I had to so I rearranged my schedule because when the premier's chief of staff wants to meet with you you go and you meet with them yes. uh, and uh, and so we sat down and he said this is your cabinet vetting interview so if you are not interested in a seat in cabinet this would be a good time to mention that and we don't have to do this interview but if you're interested in a seat in cabinet we should have this conversation and I was like oh uh, okay yeah sure I think so um okay a little um, cast it again yeah okay uh I'm pregnant 
you knew that, right? <laughs> uh, and so we had the conversation, and afterwards I called my husband and said, so I just got vetted for cabinet, and we should have a conversation about whether or not it's a good idea for me to be in cabinet. Yeah. Because we're going to have a baby in July, and it's you know, January now. Uh, and so... The conversation went along the lines of, it's going to be difficult to be a cabinet minister with a newborn, but we figured everything else out so far, we can figure that out. Because at this time, <laughs> was uh, Scott, down, your husband, down in Calgary, living in Calgary, and you yeah. were back and forth from Edmonton to Calgary? Yeah, so basically the whole time, that was that was the gig, because um, Zoe was going to be starting school before too long, and we... Uh, and Scott worked full-time in Calgary, and so uh, his office did have an Edmonton uh, branch that he could have done some work out of, but they really needed him in Calgary, and so uh, the whole for the whole time that I was elected, I think Zoe came up three or four times to Edmonton, maybe five over the, the four years, because um, she just had her own life and her own gig here, yeah. whereas if she was in Edmonton, we would have to sort out childcare for her, and and, um, it would have been a whole other. It's this whole other, yeah, yeah, this whole other logistics. So, and by the time Cassidy was born, shortly thereafter, Zoe was in kindergarten. So, even though we would have had childcare for Zoe in Edmonton, she had kindergarten. Yeah. So, <laughs> it just worked out that we sort of like the the family sort of split up in that way, and I would travel back and forth. And uh, after Cassidy was born, Cassidy and I and my mom, who came out of retirement to be our nanny, <laughs> uh, would travel with us. And so, you know, three of us would be in Edmonton, and then we'd come back to Calgary for Friday through um, Sunday and then Monday morning back up to Edmonton back home Thursday night the part that was tough about it was that uh, in order to make the Monday morning cabinet meetings we had to leave Calgary at 6 in the morning and we didn't usually get home until 9 at night on Thursday so I would say goodnight to Zoe on Sunday night and I wouldn't say hello to her again in person until Friday morning which was really tough you know and it was uh, especially because you know often I think when parents have schedules like that they're not working on the weekends no, exactly. or on the Friday evening but but I was yes you know there is there was a lot of work and I think you know and it's not working traditional nine to five hours it's nine to ten and then one to six and then yeah. another event so well and the irony too is that like looking back I realized that it would have been better to take Friday mornings off and hang out with Zoe then because she was in afternoon kindergarten because I was not always home on Friday night or like think that would have been a, a time like thinking kind of like those less traditional hours and adjusting the calendar to match that but there was also so many requests for appointments on the Fridays that it would have been really difficult to do that so <laughs> we'll get back to the cabinet here in a few seconds but I do have to ask the question um, when I've talked to your former colleagues or even uh, politicians from all stripes they say the the family core is important to them when they, they get elected so they tell their staff there's a certain amount of hours each week that I want to dedicate to my family I don't care you do not schedule between this hour and this hour on this day did you do that with yours just to make sure that you had that time with Zoe and Cassidy not at first and okay. that was a mistake 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too because uh, you know early on uh, there was that conversation of like block off some time. Yeah. My problem is I uh, I'm a bit of a people pleaser, <laughs> and so we'd get these calls being like we need someone to go to this event, and I'd be like okay. Well, like is, have you asked anyone? Uh, what I forgot to ask as part of it is have you asked everyone else first? Yeah. Um, because Not just there was, to you. well, because you know if you know someone's gonna say yes, you go to them first save yourself some time uh, and so it took me I would say quite a bit of time till I was felt confident enough about saying no uh, and I I think that if I had done that sooner it would have been a lot that the whole experience would have been a lot easier for me and for my my well-being than it ended up being um, I think that I, uh, I I regret not having been more firm about that the first t- taste of firmness I had was when I was uh, when I was pregnant uh, and like we'd so like in a cabinet day you kind of have like your day is 30 minute appointments preceded by a 15 minute briefing so it's like 15 minute briefing half an hour meeting 15 minute briefing half an hour meeting 15 minute briefing half an hour meeting half an hour meeting over lunch and then back into the same cycle and then question period <laughs> yeah when it's a session but even if it's not it's just like back to back to back to back uh, and I'm not clear when we're supposed to pee and so I was pregnant yeah. and I needed to pee and I needed to eat on a regular schedule like because I, I was growing another person and anyone who's been pregnant knows like you need to use the bathroom regularly and so at one point I pulled my scheduler aside and I was like every 90 minutes I need a 15 minute break I need that so I can use the washroom and so I can have a snack otherwise I'm not going to make it and uh, and so and she was like oh okay and I'm like seriously like I don't like 10 o'clock to 10 15 just blocking off and then like one again in the afternoon I'm like but like seriously I just like I can't I can't non-stop I'm growing a person (laughs) and so uh, that worked and it made that was the first time that was the first I had a taste of setting boundaries uh, as an elected Uh, and then after uh, Cassidy was born and I think it was actually when she was a year, like uh, our second summer. So after session was over, I was like, listen, I can't be in Edmonton every week. Like I need to be home. I don't, I don't see my big kid at all. And one of the conflicts we had at home was that I wouldn't see Zoe during the week because I was in Edmonton. And then I'd come home and on my time off, I wanted to spend time with Cassidy too. Because even though she was in Edmonton with me, her bedtime was 6.30. I would basically come home, nurse her and put her to bed. So I wasn't seeing Cassidy either. And so I would want to spend time with Cassidy. And so I was like, but you were with her all week. Because she didn't understand understand that I was working and I wasn't really with her. So it was, that was tough. And so I was like, I need, I need to just like have breakfast with my kids. I need to have dinner with my kids a couple times a week. So we ended up uh, shifting the schedule so that we had more Calgary-based stuff. Um, so it was basically one week in Edmonton and then one week in Calgary. And we, you know, like they're busy, full-on days in Calgary. And sometimes we do like zip over to Lethbridge or pop over to Canmore or go over to Medicine Hat, like so, like you know, Southern Alberta um, stops. But yeah, getting to like have breakfast was the major 
most Wait days for you. was a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like now that I'm retired from politics, breakfast with my kids is one of my favorite parts of my day. <laughs> so let's go back to your cabinet. Yeah. So you, the chief of staff appoints you, says this is your cabinet vetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so in the, in the conversation, part of it was to get asked like what, what ministry would be interested in, which I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's a that, thing. That's and a million like, dollar question. Mm, okay. Well, um, advanced ed, uh, because I used to be involved in the student movement yep. and had some pretty strong views on, on student stuff. And I, I was pretty up to speed on a lot of the issues, um, both from a student perspective as well as from a, an institution perspective. So it's like, that would, that would be great. I would love doing that. Uh, and then I also thought seniors cause I had a lot of seniors in my writing. Um, and it would be a really, I think an important one to, you know, kind of going back to that, like looking after our community piece, like making sure that seniors, folks who've done so much for our, our province are, are, are able to live comfortably, uh, later in their lives. And I said, uh, status of women, cause I'm a feminist and I thought that would be rad. Uh, and I think I might've said, I can't remember what the fourth one I said was. It might have been education, but health wasn't even on my radar. Okay. Uh, partly because I was like, well, Hoffman's doing a great job, and like health's huge. I don't want to take that on. Uh, but uh, yeah, health didn't even cross my mind. So then uh, the day before the swearing in, so be February 1st, I get a call. Well, I get a, I get a call a couple a day earlier saying the premier needs a call with me at this time. Yeah. And I'm like, in the same way that you clear your schedule for the chief of staff, you clear your schedule for the premier. Uh, so I had a call with the premier uh, and she invited me to join cabinet. And she said, so what we've got in mind for you is associate minister of health. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And she's like, we, uh, your, your, your key portfolio is going to be mental health and substance use. We've got a lot of work to do on these files. The uh, mental health review panel is going to be coming in with their recommendations. We really need someone to steer that ship. So we want you to do it. And because you're an associate, what that's going to mean is you're going to work um, in collaboration with Minister Hoffman in health. Um, we think we're going to kind of just keep like one bureaucracy, like one department, one set of staff, you'll share them. Um, and, uh, and your job's going to just be to focus on that stuff. And I was like, great. Yep. Sounds great. I have not put a lot of thought into mental health aside from like, you know, a couple of stints of seeing a therapist myself when I was younger or like, you know, a couple of family and friends that have gone through their own mental stuff, but it's never, never really given much thought to the, the system and all that. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll learn everything I can and make you proud. <laughs> and at this time, um, the mental health review that was started once you guys were elected with uh, Minister Larvey at the time, well, not at the time, but uh, MLA Larvey and David Swan, yeah. MLA Swan, um, that was going on and that sort of then yeah. got dumped on to you, really. Yeah, that, uh, that became my responsibility. We had the official acceptance or like um, adoption of the report, uh, I think three weeks after my swearing in. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and I still, like, we had, um, there was quite a, a, a focus through the review panel on um, how to support Indigenous people uh, through it. And uh, uh, they brought in a representative from Siksika Nation to help with that piece. And 
so the um, the the like kind of media event around receiving the report was done at um, health services here in Calgary, and there was a, a, a like a, a a big ceremony piece as part of it, with like the prayer and then like a round dance, and there was gifts presented to us from some elders of Siksika, and it was just this beautiful thing. And when one of the gifts was a beaded folio that said valuing mental health and it sat in my office for the entire time that I was minister Uh, and it was just it was this beautiful thing and just like for me it was a really important reminder of what we're here for and I remember they'd originally given it to Minister Hoffman and as we were in the car on the way out she passes it over to me and says this is yours now you're responsible for this and it was just this like really profound moment for me and so after um i stopped being in cabinet i i emailed my my former ea and i was like hey this thing's in my office i don't know what the rules are around keeping stuff but it would mean a lot to me if i could keep this this folio but i understand if it needs to stay with the office and then uh at a caucus meeting like two or three weeks later um sarah and rachel had me come up and they presented me it in a frame and so it sits on my desk at home now too because you know with the work I'm doing in mental health it's just like it's it's kind of that that kind of continuum of making sure that we care about mental health and how it works in the province. So when you think of mental health it's not uh, uh, I'm not trying to compare apples to oranges here but with uh, tourism culture with environment parks it's not as heavy right mental health you go out you talk to people on a day-to-day basis who are struggling, I'm assuming. Not on a day-to-day basis, but you hear stories from people across this province who need help. Mm-hmm. How does that not weigh on you? Because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, that would just put me into a place that I wouldn't want to be. So how did you overcome that? Some of the hardest conversations were, you know, sitting with parents who talked about how their child died and about all of the times that they tried to get help for their kid and their kid felt through every crack and died by suicide. You know, there was was a lot of those conversations and they were hard. But I also felt that it was my responsibility to listen and for those parents to leave or those folks that like came and talked about their their personal experiences for them to leave feeling like they were heard and that it mattered and it was to me it was also really important to have you know folks from the department whose job it was to help make sure that our mental health system was as smooth as it could be to have those folks in the room too because it was so important to be reminded that this isn't a this isn't just policy. Um, this isn't about what's good for the system. This is about real people's lives and preventable deaths. And so having, hearing that, I, I, I thought of those stories and, and those meetings as a, as a gift, really, that those folks were trusting me with something so important to them. And that it was my job to take their grief and help other families not experience that grief by decisions that we made. 
So it wasn't easy. No, I, <laughs> I, I cried a bunch. I can imagine. <laughs> we we had a number of meetings where you know I would sit on the side of the table with someone who was crying but lost their child, and we both sit there holding hands crying. So do you look back on your time as? in cabinet and as an MLA and do you ever think we could have done more? I think everyone thinks that, right? I think there's always there's always so much more to do. But and if you if you knew now, if you know mm-hmm. now, if you knew then what you know now that it would only be one term, mm-hmm. would you have gone further faster? You know, I think when I think about the mental health system in particular I think that with the stigma so deeply ingrained, both in our culture and even in the healthcare system, and um, with all of the stigma towards drug use and the opioid poisoning related deaths, I don't know that we could have gone any faster. Um, and I think we were really trying to affect system change. And it's uh, it is a long process to do that. Like there's you're steering, 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 and you're not seeing a lot of change. And it's uh, I think it's one of those things where system change takes so much work to go into it that it doesn't look like much is happening for a long time. And then you kind of hit that tipping point, and then it looks like a big change happened, and it almost looks like it happened overnight. Okay. But there's been like a decade of work behind it. And so I think we were sort of, we were in part of that um, phase. And I think, I think that some of that work is going to continue. And for us, a really important piece, and for me personally, a really important piece was empowering the um, community-based agencies, like the not-for-profits that are doing mental health work, and empowering them to keep doing the really awesome work they were doing in the community. Um, because the public health care system is only designed for acute and crisis situations. But especially with mental health, there's so many opportunities to, 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 to help and to offer those supports and change the dial for someone to help them change the dial for themselves that if we wait till that point yeah. it's it's like you can still do work there but this other piece before is so important and there's so much work on that being done at the community level and, and so we, we you know put a lot of funding into that and a lot of support one of the things that we managed to do was to really empower um, the not-for-profits doing this work to stand in their own successes yeah. and to really say like this is the space we work in and it's important and we're going to keep doing it um, and that that felt really good you know so it's um, you know I, I wish we'd gotten further but at the same time I think I think we did the best that we could so we'll move to a subject that hey, we talked about before the podcast began but your decision not to run mm-hmm. you've had four years in power most people would want to continue that but you took it and you said you know what enough's enough I'm gonna step back what was that decision like yeah it was uh, it was a tough choice it really was that was my favorite job that I'd had to that point in my career and in my life I, I loved the work um, I didn't love commuting to Edmonton all the time <laughs> I think a lot of your Calgary uh, colleagues will agree with that which is a common view uh, I didn't love the commute uh, I didn't love the Twitter. Um, but other than that, it was pretty awesome. And 
if that had been it, I could have probably done it for a lot longer. But the problem was that it wasn't it. Um, that I had been giving so much to the job that I was neglecting my personal life. I was neglecting my health. Um, I was neglecting my friendships. I was neglecting my family. Like I, 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 did, I rarely saw my extended family other than like when my mom was watching Cassidy and that was more of a like, hi mom, gotta run. Oh, hi mom, good to see you. Do you guys have a good day? Okay, see you later. Yep. Um, Should go down, okay, yep. <laughs> yeah, how was nap time? Uh, and, uh, and my marriage was struggling. Um, I saw my friends maybe once every two months and I, I was really struggling. Uh, I was going through some personal and professional burnout and I just, I looked at Cassidy one day as I was changing her diaper and I was like, huh, you're a toddler now. I don't remember that change. Not that it happened fast, but that I didn't see it. And I realized that I I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And so I that was a hard choice and I I sat with it for some time and I you know that was like I I think the first time that I said out loud to myself, maybe I shouldn't run again, was in uh, January 2018. And the first time I said it out loud, it sounded like a horrible choice. (laughs) And then the second time I said it out loud, it sounded like maybe it had some merit. And the more that I thought about it, and the more that I realized what I was sacrificing to be an elected representative, the more I started to realize that it wasn't worth it. And so I talked to my husband about it, and he said, you know, whatever you decide, it's your choice. I'm here behind you 100%, and we'll figure it out, whatever you decide. And he's like, yeah, I just, I just don't, I don't know that relationships that matter to me are going to survive another four-year term. I don't know that I'm going to survive another four-year term if things don't change a lot. And I think it's, that's the challenge with burnout, too, is when you're in it, you can't see what different looks like. Yeah. And so it's so hard to, to think of the things that I could do to make it so that I could keep doing the job. And so I decided that I would not keep doing the job. And a couple weeks after that, I talked to the premier. A couple weeks after that, I did my formal announcement. Months after that, um, we the cabinet shuffle happened, and I was a private member again. Which, you know, to be honest, was was perfect for me. You know, I was I was really sad to no longer be doing the role of uh, of the work around mental health and substance use. But from a personal point of view, and from like it was my own well being, yeah, it was it was it was perfect. It was what I really needed. So, did you help out? <laughs> on the 2019 campaign? I did some volunteering for my local campaign, but I... you were trying to... Yeah. Well, and much like 2015, Scott, 
work through the whole thing. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so he I worked through it, you looked after the kids? I looked after the kids and uh, volunteered and did a bunch of yoga and, you know, tried to work on not being burnt out. Yeah. So what happened after the election? So you announced your retirement. Mm-hmm. The, the moment the writs dropped, you're no longer an MLA. You're a private citizen again. Yeah. So what, what, what was the first thing that you did? Slept? Deleted my Twitter account. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, and then the second thing I did was slap. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I took a, a few months just kind of get my bearings and try and figure out what to do next and reached out to some of the folks that I've been working with to discuss opportunities as one does. And I think it was the first time that not-for-profits got impro- approached by a former cabinet minister about coming to work with them. <laughs> that's what you're doing here. You're consulting, right? Yeah. So it was, uh, and then... Yeah, what I, what I was finding was like, um, like when I decided not to run again, the part that was the hardest part about the decision was thinking that I wasn't going to be able to be involved in in mental health work uh, until my husband pointed out that you know all those like stakeholders that I had, the not for profits that I've been working with so much, they all are doing the work too, and so therefore there are opportunities to do the work, uh, and so it's just not wouldn't be in government; it would just be a different way, and so. Um, you know, as I thought about how to do that, I realized that one of the ways that I could best do the work was rather than, you know, getting a, a full-time permanent gig with someone, which would be cool too, um, was to, to do a little bit uh, more of that consulting role and working on specific goals with with not-for-profits. And one of the things that, and, and also the broader like corporate sector too, but like the one one of the things that kept coming up every nonprofit I talked to was like all these agencies are doing mental health programming. Sometimes it's been like, you know, okay, there's a grant here, we'll do this thing, or a grant there, we'll do this thing. But there wasn't always a systemic plan for it, or it would be like, we want to do this, but we don't know where to start. Okay. Mental health programming can be really overwhelming. And so... One of the areas of focus that I do is around how do we plan this and how do we make sure that you're tracking what you need to track so you can keep your program sustainable um, and that we know it's working for your client base and so, um, you know, kind of that framework support and, and that and program are you planning. It? I do, yeah. Do you? It's really great. Is it? better than you thought it was going to be after leaving office because yeah. when you leave office like you said it was it's, the best job you had well, now you're into something else and you're like this yeah is, no this is the best job I've there had. you go <laughs> <laughs> well and the other uh, another uh, piece of the work that I'm doing is around workplace mental health okay because um, it's just such a, a big issue we, we spend so much of our time at work and I think that our whole city, possibly our whole province, is kind of on the brink of burnout. And, and having been through it myself, and and being someone you know who's in a, a leadership position in an organization who, because of burnout, left. I'm not the only person like that. So how do we There's change so that? So many then? people like that. Well, I, you know, it's uh, culture is a, a big part of it. You know how how our workplace cultures are and. Um, some of the little things, you know, we've got our cell phones with us all the time and I'm, I'm not here to blame technology. I love my cell phone. I think it's great. I'm really happy to only have one now. Um, <laughs> you not like, the three? Uh, you know, not at all. Uh, it's, it fits much better in my purse now that there's just one. But, you know, it's like, it's a, uh, cell phones are 
plastic, glass, and rare minerals. Like, they're things, but we let them take a lot of ownership by not setting those boundaries. And I think, you know, it's it can be as simple as saying, if you need me after hours, pick up the phone and call me. I'm not checking emails. And having that break, there's so much research now on that, how important that mental break is, of like that time when you're not working. And it's not just good for your brain and your 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 mental health and your well-being, but it's also good for like the work you bring the next day and ongoing. Your productivity is higher when you take breaks. That 15 minutes to use the bathroom and take a snack was not just helpful for me as a pregnant person. We should have all been doing that because we would have been better at our jobs for taking those little breaks. And so having some of that work and coaching on it is so important because it's so easy for us to think that we just need to work harder uh, and and ultimately we do so many things that undermine our productivity and our well-being at the same time because the two are really linked right like if yeah. you're if you're stressed and exhausted you're not working at your best and so building in those like breaks and the, uh, some of the other tools so that people can take those breaks is really important and so some of the work that I do is I go to a company, um, whether, you know, nonprofit, labor, corporate, any, like across sectors, applies to everyone really. Um, and we see where you're at, right? Like how is, how's everyone's mental health doing at work? How, where, where are the pressure points for people? And then what are some little things that we can do? What are some of the bigger things we can look at down the line? But what are some of the little things we can do to help improve employee mental well-being as well as their productivity because those two are so linked and so there's a real business case for it as well beyond like that this is the right thing to do which is captivating too but it's like this has an impact well i think when i was there i was looking at my old job that i just left because i would look at my phone every hour on the hour after work hours and i wouldn't charge for it but i would be constantly worrying about work right and then when I left it and I started my own company, I now realize that, you know what, the company only gets paid when I work and I only get paid a certain amount of hours each week. If I do anything above that, that's outside of my time. And the stress that I had prior to this compared to what I'm doing now and I'm just relaxed and I, I, I do the 30 hours a week and I'm getting a few more clients here soon, then I'm a lot more relaxed. And my husband will even say, like, you just don't seem as pent up and frustrated and burnt out like you said prior to that so I can imagine that I'm just one person that everyone's feeling this right well and you know for a lot of companies if they look at their um, their long term and short term disabilities and their sick days there's a lot of people that are off for mental health reasons because they're just you know the stress and the burnout and then it that sort of stuff triggers and, and makes anxiety and depression worse for people. Um, and like the, the level of stress leave is really high. And there's a cost to businesses for that, right? Like there is, um, if someone's off on stress leave, you're, you're not getting the, the value of their work. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, there's folks coming to work every day who are operating well below their capacity because they're just they're just at the end. They've got nothing left. And our brains are really smart. 
if we don't give our brains the rest that they need, our brains are just going to take it, right? Like there's, there's been studies done that people who aren't getting enough sleep have micro sleeps throughout the day where their brain just puts itself into a state of sleep as a method of self-defense. And so, you know, you're at risk of losing really talented people and people that, you know, you probably worked really hard to recruit and they're going to go because they feel too stressed to keep working there. Yeah. And you can change that. You can avoid it. And so that's, so that's how, kind of that what I'm doing. How's that balancing act, though? Because as an employer, mm-hmm. I, want the, I want the best product, right? Absolutely. I want the person who's going to work around the clock for me no matter what. And as an employee, I see that as an, in an employer, and I'm saying, okay, I have to keep on going, right? right? I just have to keep on going. So how do you balance that where you want the best product, but you want to make sure you're getting that help and that time where you need to just decompress yourself? Well, the irony of that statement is that if you want the best product, you actually need to give your people rest breaks. They actually need that time off because, you know, and especially in the knowledge economy, so many people's work, like we don't, not a lot of people work in factories. I mean, there are absolutely people who do um, and their, their job or like, you know, people in the construction industry, for example, as well, like their, their job is a physical labor, there's a physical product at the end of the day. But for so many of the people in in our city and in our province uh, and really around the world, there isn't a physical product at the end of the day. We're paying them for their brains and their ability to think. And there have been reams and reams of studies that show that if someone is working all of the time and they don't have the ability to decompress, their intellectual capability drops because they go out of that really high functioning, really high thinking part of their brain into more of their like lower level brain and start start getting into like their amygdala and their reptilian brain. And so then you're paying someone for their big brain and they're bringing you like their their low brain like so you're paying for a game but you're getting c game but if you say listen company policy is we don't email after 6 p.m until 6 a.m unless it's like an emergency in which case we are going to phone you yeah so you don't have to check your email nothing important's coming in we'll call you if we need you which actually was one of the rules that i said <laughs> when i started setting rules um but, you know, so so having that time, they're going to have a chance to, like, check out and, like, reset their brain. Get Focus that relaxation. Yeah. Get out of work brain. And then they're going to show up the next day more refreshed and ready to go and still at A game. Whereas if you keep someone on call that whole time... That's when, over time, it starts to drop and you start to see the impacts of it. So ultimately, if you are looking for the best product, taking care of your people's well-being, mental well-being, is a key part to enabling that. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk about you in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I do ask this to most politicians, <laughs> former politicians. Is politics ever going to be back in your life? <laughs> or uh, are you done with elected life? Yeah, I I mean, never say never uh, <laughs> is one of the lessons that I've learned. Yep. Um, but I, I don't think I would go back while my kids are small. 
Um, I think that, and I think that if I was to go back, it would be more local. Um, as like municipal to, or school yeah, board? Yeah, municipal or school board. Something that I don't have to travel to Edmonton. So maybe if they, they relocate the legislature to Calgary, <laughs> that's on the table. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine was joking that I should make that happen in my last couple of months in office. And I was like, well, the premier's from Edmonton, so I'm pretty sure she's not going to agree to it. Uh, the new premier's from Calgary, so maybe he'll agree. I don't know. Uh, we, uh, But yeah, so uh, I think, you know, for me, that ability to have breakfast with my kids and my husband in the morning is really really important and that that like that that family touch time is is really something that I would be hard pressed to give that up again unless it was something local yeah so and you know so when people ask me about municipal because they sometimes do uh my current line is not until Cassidy is 18 so you know call me in 15 years um but for now the answer is no looking back on your life so far are you happy the way that it's turned out absolutely you know I think when I I look back at my time in elected life and I mean it wasn't easy and you know I I still recovering from that burnout a little uh, it's uh, I would do it all again you know and I would I would go in cabinet again I would have a baby while I was a cabinet minister again I would make a couple changes differently like make a couple different decisions around the margins like I probably would have taken Sometime. two months for my maternity leave you know like instead of you know being back in Edmonton when the baby was four weeks old I might have waited longer uh, and I would have done a better job of, of carving out and protecting that family time earlier on um, and I also would have done a better job of like identifying my own personal baselines like it occurred to me at one point in like the last year and a half in office that I was a happier, healthier person if I did half an hour of yoga two days a week before I went into work. You know, like, wow. and it's like easy to do when you're on your own and your kids are in a different city. Yeah. Uh, I just wake up a little bit earlier. Like, and then I would, I would run three days a week and then do yoga twice a week when I was in Edmonton kind of thing. And so like having that be part of my day before I did the rest of my day, even if it meant less sleep in, that that was going to make a better day. Things like that. Uh, I wish that I'd clued into those pieces of how how much some like physical movement can really impact your well-being um, or my certainly my well-being and lots of research on that too but like having applied some of those principles to myself sooner yeah. I think might have made the outcome different is there anything from your time in office that you still do today that you're like well I'm surprised that I still do that I didn't pick up that trait whether it be the yoga two times a week or something else um I uh, I still do the thing where if I'm finding a busy time, like I will figure out what's the minimum that I need and make sure I'm getting that. Um, so my average week, I aim to go to yoga three days a week. I don't run anymore because I have plantar fasciitis and that's no fun to run with that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so and then I usually go for walks uh, a couple times during the week. But the minimum that I need is like... Two 30 minute at home yoga practices during the week and like three 10 minute walks kind of thing so like knowing that that's that you know the longer version is better but the, the maintenance level yeah. is that and then making sure that that still happens no matter how busy life gets has been really helpful 
Um, I also uh, uh, I recommitted to reading, so I read for at least 30 minutes every day, uh, and I started doing that um, in I think my second year in cabinet. And so this year I've read uh, 80 books. I'm about to finish my 81st book in this calendar year. And the year that I was in cabinet for half the year, I read like 62 books, which, you know, is, is still quite a lot. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's like knowing that with a schedule like that, I can still finally slice some self-care time. Um has been helpful because you know with a schedule that's far more open now <laughs> it's easier to maintain it's like well if you did it while you were in cabinet you can do it now <laughs> exactly and the last question is what's the future hold for brandy uh we'll see uh you know my 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 hope for the future is um i'd really love to to keep um, doing this work around mental health, particularly the workplace uh, aspect. I think there's just so much room there. There's every, we all spend most of our time at work, so having a, a workplace that that supports our well-being is really important. And uh, you know, continuing to have lots of time with with the kidlets and my husband seems like pretty great too. So, and I keep working on that balance piece. <laughs> <laughs> that balance is always key. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, my I don't pleasure. want to. More of your time, sorry. Thank you for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And one last time, thank you for our guest for coming in, sitting down with us. Much appreciated. But I also want to take this moment and thank you, the listeners, for tuning in, for subscribing and listening to our great podcast. Without your subscriptions and feedback, we wouldn't have the ability to continue on this great adventure. If you haven't already, head over to Facebook. Give us a like. Cross Border Podcast. It's easy to find. Just type in Cross Border Podcast on that search bar or Twitter and Instagram, both Cross Border Podcast. And with that, I bid you adieu. We'll be back here next Saturday with another great edition of the Cross Border Interview Podcast.